Chapter Four of Running the Blockade by Thomas E. Taylor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: The Banshee's First Run-In, The Approach to Wilmington, Fort Fisher, Tactics of the Blockading Squadron, Reason of the Banshee's Success, The Lookout Man, The Dangers of Blockade Running, The Favorite Course into Wilmington, All Lights Out, An Anxious Moment taking soundings, in the midst of the enemy, a false reckoning, the big hill, attacked by gunboats, Fort Fisher wide awake, safely over the bar, the days of champagne cocktails. Wilmington was the first port I attempted. In fact, with the exception of one run to Galveston, it was always our destination. It had many advantages. Though furthest from Nassau, it was nearest to headquarters at Richmond, and from its situation was very difficult to watch effectively. It was here, moreover, that my firm had established its agency as soon as they had resolved to take up the blockade-running business. The town itself lies some sixteen miles up the Cape Fear River, which falls into the ocean at a point where the coast forms the sharp salient angle from which the river takes its name. Off its mouth lies a delta known as Smith's Island, which not only emphasizes the obnoxious formation of the coast, but also divides the approach to the port into two widely separated channels, so that in order to guard the approach to it a blockading force is compelled to divide into two squadrons. At one entrance of the river lies Fort Fisher, a work so powerful that the blockaders, instead of lying in the estuary, were obliged to form roughly a semicircle out of range of its guns, and the falling away of the coast on either side of the entrance further increased the extent of ground they had to cover. The system they adopted in order to meet the difficulty was extremely well conceived, and did we not know to the contrary, it would have appeared complete enough to ensure the capture of every vessel so foolhardy as to attempt to enter or come out. Across either entrance an inshore squadron was stationed at close intervals. In the daytime the steamers composing this squadron anchored, but at night they got under way and patrolled in touch with the flagship, which as a rule remained at anchor. Further out there was a cordon of cruisers, and outside these again detached gunboats, keeping at such a distance from the coast as they calculated a runner coming out would traverse between the time of high water on Wilmington Bar and sunrise, so that if any blockade runner coming out got through the two inner lines in the dark, she had every chance of being snapped up at daybreak by one of the third division. Besides these special precautions for Wilmington, there must not be forgotten the ships engaged in the general service of the blockade, consisting, in addition to those detailed to watch Nassau and other bases, of free cruisers that patrolled the Gulf Stream. From this it will be seen readily that from the moment the Banshee left Nassau Harbor till she had passed the protecting forts at the mouth of Cape Fear River, she and those on board her could never be safe from danger or free for a single hour from anxiety. But although at this time the system was already fairly well developed, the northerners had not yet enough ships at work to make it as effective as it afterward became. The Banshee's engines proved so unsatisfactory that under ordinary conditions nine or ten knots was all we could get out of her. She was therefore not permitted to run any avoidable risks, and to this I attribute her extraordinary success 
when better boats failed. As long as daylight lasted, a man was never out of the cross-trees, and the moment a sail was seen the banshee's stern was turned to it till it was dropped below the horizon. The lookout man, to quicken his eyes, had a dollar for every sail he sighted, and if it were seen from the deck first, he was fined five. This may appear excessive, but the importance in blockade-running of seeing before you are seen is too great for any chance to be neglected, and it must be remembered that the pay of ordinary seamen for each round trip in and out was from fifty to sixty pounds. Following these tactics we crept noiselessly along the shores of the Bahamas, invisible in the darkness, and ran on unmolested for the first two days out, though our course was often interfered with by the necessity of avoiding hostile vessels. Then came the anxious moment on the third, when, her position having been taken at noon to see if she were near enough to run under the guns of Fort Fisher before the following daybreak, it was found there was just time, but none to spare for accidents or delay. Still, the danger of lying out another day so close to the blockaded port was very great, and rather than risk it we resolved to keep straight on our course, and chance being overtaken by daylight before we were under the fort. Now the real excitement began, and nothing I have ever experienced can compare with it. Hunting, pig-sticking, steeple-chasing, big-game shooting, polo, I have done a little of each, all have their thrilling moments, but none can approach running a blockade, and perhaps my readers can sympathize with my enthusiasm when they consider the dangers to be encountered. After three days of constant anxiety and little sleep, in threading our way through a swarm of blockaders, and the accuracy required to hit in the nick of time the mouth of a river only half a mile wide, without lights, and with a coastline so low and featureless that as a rule the first intimation we had of its nearness was the dim white line of the surf. There were, of course, many different plans of getting in, but this time the favorite dodge was to run up some fifteen or twenty miles to the north of Cape Fear, so as to round the northernmost of the blockaders, instead of dashing right through the inner squadron, then to creep down close to the surf till the river was reached, and this was the course the Banshee intended to adopt. We steamed cautiously on until nightfall. The night proved dark, but dangerously clear and calm. No lights were allowed, not even a cigar. The engine-room hatchways were covered with tarpaulins, at the risk of suffocating the unfortunate engineers and stokers in the almost insufferable atmosphere below, but it was absolutely imperative that not a glimmer of light should appear. Even the binnacle was covered, and the steersman had to see as much of the compass as he could through a conical aperture carried almost up to his eyes. With everything thus in readiness we steamed on in silence except for the stroke of the engines and the beat of the paddle floats, which in the calm of the night seemed distressingly loud. All hands were on deck, crouching behind the bulwarks, and we on the bridge, namely the captain, the pilot, and I, were straining our eyes into the darkness. Presently Burroughs made an uneasy movement. "'Better get a cast of the lead, Captain,' I heard him whisper. A muttered order down the engine-room tube was Steele's reply, and the banshee slowed and then stopped. It was an anxious moment, while a dim figure stole into the fore-chains, for there is always a danger of steam blowing off when engines are unexpectedly stopped, and that would have been enough to betray our presence for miles around. In a minute or two came back the report, 
sixteen fathoms, sandy bottom with black specks. "'We are not as far in as I thought, Captain,' said Burroughs, "'and we are too far to the southward. "'Port two points, and go a little faster.' As he explained, we must be well to the northward of the speckled bottom before it was safe to head for the shore, and away we went again. In about an hour Burroughs quietly asked for another sounding. Again she was gently stopped, and this time he was satisfied. Starboard and go ahead easy was the order now, and as we crept in not a sound was heard but that of the regular beat of the paddle float still dangerously loud in spite of our snail's pace. Suddenly Burroughs gripped my arm. "'There's one of them, Mr. Taylor,' he whispered, "'on the starboard bow.' In vain I strained my eyes to where he pointed, not a thing could I see, but presently I heard Steele say beneath his breath, "'All right, Burroughs, I see her. Starboard a little. Steady,' was the order passed aft. A moment afterwards I could make out a long, low, black object on the starboard side, lying perfectly still. Would she see us? That was the question.' But no, though we passed within a hundred yards of her, we were not discovered, and I breathed again. Not very long after we had dropped her, Burroughs whispered, Steamer on the port bow. And another cruiser was made out close to us. Hard a port, said Steele, and round she swung, bringing our friend upon our beam. Still unobserved, we crept quietly on, when all at once a third cruiser shaped itself out of the gloom right ahead and steamed slowly across our bows. Stop her, said Steele in a moment, and as we lay like dead our enemy went on and disappeared in the darkness. It was clear there was a false reckoning somewhere, and that instead of rounding the head of the blockading line we were passing through the very centre of it. However, Burroughs was now of opinion that we must be inside the squadron, and advocated making the land. So, slow ahead, we went, again, until the low-lying coast and the surf-line became dimly visible. Still, we could not tell where we were, and as time was getting on alarmingly near dawn, the only thing to do was to creep down along the surf as close in and as fast as we dared. It was a great relief when we suddenly heard Burroughs say, "'It's all right. I see the big hill.' The big hill was a hillock about as high as a full-grown oak tree, but it was the most prominent feature for miles on that dreary coast, and served to tell us exactly how far we were from Fort Fisher. And fortunate it was for us we were so near. Daylight was already breaking, and before we were opposite the fort we could make out six or seven gunboats, which steamed rapidly toward us and angrily opened fire. Their shots were soon dropping close around us, an unpleasant sensation when you know you have several tons of gunpowder under your feet. To make matters worse, the North Breaker Shoal now compelled us to haul off the shore and steam further out. It began to look ugly for us, when all at once there was a flash from the shore, followed by a sound that came like music to our ears, that of a shell whirring over our heads. It was Fort Fisher, wide awake and warning the gunboats to keep their distance. After a parting broadside they steamed sulkily out of range, and in half an hour we were safely over the bar. A boat put off from the fort, and then, well, it was the days of champagne cocktails, not whiskies and sodas, and one did not run a blockade every day. For my part I was mightily proud of my first attempt and my baptism of fire. Blockade running seemed the pleasantest and most exhilarating of pastimes. I did not know then 
what a very serious business it could be. End of chapter 4